facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. A tremendous Thursday to you. It's the octave of Easter. It's The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Let me give out the phone number to call right now. You can go ahead and grab a line, 888-914-9149. Once again, 888-914-9149. You can also follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. Show account at Kale Clark Show. The email address, and I'm going to read actually a really fun listener email in just a second, is Kale, C-A-L-E at RelevantRadio.com. C-A-L-E at RelevantRadio.com. So good to be with you on this Thursday. So much to talk about. I love today's gospel where Jesus shows he is not a disembodied spirit. He's not a ghost. He's got a body of flesh and bone. He even eats filet fish anyone? We'll talk about that. I'm also going to share later on one of the biggest business blunders of the last 20 years, how Nike absolutely you know, fumbled away an incredible opportunity. Now, they're known for having the golden touch and I don't know if you've seen the movie Air. Uh, once again, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck back together again. Kind of shades of goodwill hunting. Uh, this one's about how Nike sa- signed Michael Jordan to a shoe contract back in 1984. And I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm really excited about that. I wanted to ask uh, Chuck Swirsky about that, but we kind of ran out of time. And he's excited. He's happy because the Bulls beat my Raptors last night. But that's okay. I'm not, I'm not sad about it. We have hope. Uh, there's a lot bigger things out there than sports, and uh, but we're, we're going to be talking about kind of a viral moment that happened in that game. Maybe you've seen it on the internet already. We're going to let you in about that. And also, because it's Thursday, the day of the Eucharist, we're going to talk about four Eucharistic miracles that happened in your lifetime and mine. As long as you were alive in the last few years, this happened while we were on planet Earth. So the, the, these are things that don't just happen in the distant past, these Eucharistic miracles, they're happening right now. It's Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. Faith, facts, and fun. And as I mentioned, the email address, kale at relevantradio.com. I got a great email. I just opened it up before the show. I had to share it with you from Michelle, who's listening in Los Angeles on 9.30 a.m. KHJ. And remember yesterday on the show, we were talking about the resurrection. We talked about a famous poem by John Updike, Seven Stanzas at Easter. And it's all about how the resurrection is real. It's not a metaphor. It's physical. It actually happened. Love that poem. And so Michelle wrote to me and she said, Kale, thanks. Your show today, and that was yesterday, inspired me to write this Easter poem. So I love it when listeners kind of join in on this. So she wrote a poem that's called Hard Evidence. Hard Evidence. And this is what she says. This is the poem. If the disciples hadn't encountered him, risen, three days after he had died, they wouldn't have given their lives for him, wouldn't even have tried. They didn't suggest they'd had a vision of Jesus resurrected, just in a dream. The sun shone through a cloud of witnesses, healed wound marks proof he did redeem. That is really good. That's really good, kind of in this style of John Updike's Seven Stanzas at Easter. I love that. So thank you so much, Michelle, for writing in. And you can write in, too, if you have show ideas or even poems. Love to read them. Kale at RelevantRadio.com. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, The Ghost in the Machine. And, and, and I'm talking about not, a, not an album, of course, by The Police featuring Sting. We remember that one from the 80s. I love the 80s. I want to go back. But we can't. We, we have to live in the moment, right? We're living in the moment on Relevant Radio as Mike Kendall always likes to say. 
and Luke chapter 24, that's the gospel from today. This is one of my favorite, favorite all-time passages in the New Testament. And I, I even wrote a paper about this uh, in my grad studies. I just love this. And it's all about how Jesus appears to the disciples after he's drowned. This is right after the road to Emmaus. We talked about that a bit yesterday. This is Luke chapter 24, verses 35 to 48. And this is what St. Luke writes. He says, The disciples of Jesus recounted what had taken place along the way and how they had come to recognize him in the breaking of bread. Those are the guys that were on the road to Emmaus with uh, Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus at the time. They realize it's him when he celebrates the Eucharist for them. Okay, so while they're still speaking about this, he stood in their midst. Jesus shows up. He stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Then he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do questions arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Now, by the way, this translation of ghost, that's, that's, that's not actually a good translation. And a lot of really great scholars over time have got tripped up on this. So it says ghost, but it's not ghost. It, it actually is the Greek word. We know that Luke was writing in Greek. And by the way, just sidebar, Luke's Greek, because he wrote the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospel of Luke, his Greek is excellent. It's like approaching classical Greek. It's really, really good. The word there in Greek is pneuma. Uh, from which we get the word spirit. So really what he's saying is, I am not a spirit. And so uh, pneumatology, you might have heard about that. Uh, but it's all about the spirit. And, and, and he says, I am not a spirit. I am not a spirit. Well, we'll get into what that means in just a second. But ghost is actually a bad translation. But he says, uh, look at my hands and my feet. Why would he say that? Well, he's obviously referencing the wounds of the crucifixion ordeal, which he still had in his resurrected body. It's kind of like his ID. That's how you know it's him. Because he was a bit mysterious, right? The disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize him. They didn't know it was him immediately. So it's him, but he's changed. There's continuity. There's also discontinuity. But the, the nail marks are, are part of the proof. And then he says, touch me and see, because a ghost, and again, probably a bad translation, but because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see, I have. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they were still incredulous for joy and were amazed, he asked them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish. He took it and ate it in front of them. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And there's so many really cool things about this. One of them is that, don't forget, the New Testament had not been written yet, but Jesus is saying, I'm going to open the scriptures for you so that you can understand that there's stuff in there. And he's talking about the Old Testament that's about me. And, and the, fact is, the fact of the matter is that Christ is the subject of all of scripture, really. 
And St. Augustine used to say that the New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed, with the Christ having come. Now, now certain things make sense that maybe didn't before. And so he says, it is written that the Christ was suffered. Where would it be written? Of course, this is in the Old Testament. Uh, the Law of Moses, the Torah, the Prophets, the Psalms. There are also the writings uh, of, the, of the Prophets. It has to be fulfilled. And this idea that he's eating in front of them too. Have you, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish. And in some translations, it says broiled fish. I don't know whether it was baked or broiled, but maybe baked was a little bit more fried, maybe. No, uh, probably a little bit more healthy. I don't know. Not that he needs it in his resurrected body, but he, he he's not doing it because he's actually hungry. He's trying to prove to them that he's real, that he's physical. Because in the ancient world, there is a saying that was very, very well known among the pagans. It was simply this. Ghosts don't make food disappear. Ghosts do not eat. Ghosts do not eat. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I am real. I'm physically resurrected. This is not a figment of your imagination. I, I'm corporal. I, I'm physical. I can, I can eat. I've still got a stomach in my, in, my, in my resurrected body. Do I need to eat to stay alive? No, I'm alive forevermore. But I'm doing this to make a point to you. And St. Luke knows, by the way, you're listening to the K.O. Clark Show, 888-914-9149. St. Luke knows, because he, he's from this Greco-Roman background, he knows that this is foolishness to the Greeks, right? This is what St. Paul says in one of his letters. The gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. They, they think it's ridiculous, this idea of somebody rising from the dead, somebody being resurrected from the dead. It's, it's utter nonsense to them. And, he, and Luke knows this. And that's why in the Acts of the Apostles, and he, and he wrote this about St. Paul, and Luke was one of Paul's traveling missionary companions in Acts chapter 17, when Paul goes to Athens. This is, this is the, you know, you're, you're, you've arrived, you're at Harvard, you're, you're at Yale, you are amongst all the great scholars, all the great minds. Athens was the hub of the intellectual life in Greece. And so what does he do when he goes to Athens? And you can read about this, by the way, in Acts chapter 17, Paul kind of follows his normal MO, his modus operandi. He, he goes first of all to the synagogue and then he goes to the pagans. So, but what it says this in uh, Acts 17, verse 16, it says, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, what's he doing? He's kind of killing time. He's waiting for his companions to show up. And he's kind of walking around. He's kind of checking things out. And maybe if he was in Chicago, he'd be on Michigan Avenue. I don't know, New York City. He'd be in lower Manhattan. But he just, the city is full of idols. And it says his spirit was provoked with him. It's almost like he's sick to his stomach. It turns his stomach. He is so angry about this. And so he starts trying to talk to people about Jesus. And so he goes to the synagogue. And also it says he goes to the marketplace. He says, uh, Luke says that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers met him. And some said, well, what does this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. And they brought him to the Areopagus. They took hold of him, brought him to the Areopagus. Now that was a place where everybody kind of hung out. It means the hill of Ares, and that's, that's kind of like Mars Hill, if you will. Um, Ares, Mars, 
same guy, uh, pagan god of war, the Greek god of war. See the first Wonder Woman movie. There's a little bit about that, and that, that's about all I want to. I don't want to give the spoiler alert away, but um, so he goes to the hill of Ares, the hill of Mars, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and that's where everybody kind of hung out. They would just talk about nothing but the latest ideas, and this is what Luke says. He says that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Give me the news. Give me, give me what's trending. Give me what's, what's blowing up on Twitter. That's what I want to talk about. And so they know that Paul has this idea that's new to them. It's not, it's not new to Paul. The concept of resurrection comes from the Old Testament, of course. But, but they say to him, may we know what this new teaching is which you present? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul, it says, he's standing in the middle of the Areopagus said, and this is just like an incredible an incredible homily, it's an incredible sermon, it's an incredible talk, because he enculturates the gospel to their situation. This is exactly what we have to do in these days after Easter. We have to make the message intelligible to the people that we know, whether we're in the business community. We have to make it intelligible to them. If we're talking to athletes, we got to use sports metaphors, and Paul used a, a ton of them in the New Testament. No matter who you're talking to, you've got to kind of speak their language as well as the language of the gospel. And so this is what Paul says. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. That kind of throws him a little compliment there. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So that's really cool. So he's looking around at all these pagan idols, these pagan altars, and there are certainly idols in our society as well. And, and the Greeks, they, they didn't want to miss anybody in case they, they had all these pagan gods. Well, just in case we missed one, let's build an altar to, an, uh, to the unknown god. We don't even know if we missed one, but just in case. No offense intended. Um, so Paul says, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. And this is just brilliant. He says, what you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So I'm going to reveal who this unknown God is, and it turns out he's the only true God. You don't know who he is yet, but I'm about to tell you. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. And he made from one every nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. So basically what he's saying is God determined the exact places where people would live. And that goes for you and me as well. Our lives are not accidental. It's providential. Where we've been placed, who we're working with, who's at the next cubicle, who's the neighbor next door, who are the guys you're playing in the softball league with. All of this is sort of preordained by God, or at least he's allowed this to happen, because he's put you in the proximity of people that need to hear the message through you. Not through just anybody, through you. It's, it's been often said that a great definition of, of preaching is truth poured through personality. I really like that, truth poured through personality. So the way it's going to come through you, through your words and actions, is a little bit different from the way it's going to come from somebody else. But that's, that's, that's fine because God has people that only you can reach, that, that you're kind of tailor-made for them. And so just keep that in mind. And Paul goes on to say that he, the reason why he did all this, why God did all this, so that people would reach out and seek God 
in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. It's kind of like you're looking for the light switch in the dark. Yet he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. So he's quoting from their own poets, their own singers, their own musicians of the day, if you will. We had our own little poem here earlier on the show, and so he's quoting from stuff that they know that's culturally relevant to them to explain the gospel. It's just awesome stuff. And then he goes on to say, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, a representation by the art and imagination of man. In the times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, this is where he kind of really throws down the challenge here, throws down the gauntlet. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all people by raising him from the dead. Now, that's when they start murmuring and what? It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from among them, but some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So this is incredible. And, and Paul is basically saying that you need to repent. You need to leave your sinful ways because God is going to judge the world. And he's given the down payment on this. You can take it to the bank because he has raised Jesus from the dead. And, and Jesus is the one who's going to judge the world in righteousness on the last day. The proof of this, he's raised from the dead. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, that God's not going to raise a heretic from the dead. Because that's gonna, if, you're, if you're preaching all this falsehood about God, it, people are only going to believe it if you're raised from the dead. So this is the validation of Jesus' person and message. And there's really only three reactions to it, ultimately, and that's what happens in Athens. When they hear about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And this is the foolishness to the Greeks' part. They're like, yeah, whatever. This is, that's ridiculous. Dead people don't come back to life. And I would grant you that normally they don't. That's why it's a miracle. Some mocked, but others said, well, we'll hear you again about this. Oh, that's interesting, intriguing. I'm not ready to give my life to this yet. I'm not ready to, I don't even know if I believe it, but I am intrigued. I am intrigued. It's the seeds have been sown and it might take some time for them to germinate. But then others, they, they, they're granted this gift of faith right away. Some believed right away, like Dionysius, the Areopagite. He was one of the guys who hung out there looking for the latest news. And there was a woman named Damaris and some others with them. So, so people did believe. So either, no, this is crazy, wait, I need to think about this, or yeah, I believe. Those are, those are essentially still the three reactions today. And so Luke knows this when he's talking about the resurrection. And I think that's why he takes great pains to, to back it up, because he knows that the, the objections that people have in the culture, and people still have a lot of objections about it today. They did in the first century, they do in the 21st century, but that doesn't make it any less true. So just keep that in mind and love to hear your reaction to this. Well, much, much more after the break. 888 It's Kale Clark Show right here on Relevant Radio.
And welcome back to the K.O. Clark Show, 888 Yeah, it's my Canadian buddy, I don't know, Justin Bieber, singing Ghost. I miss you more than life. And that's how the disciples felt, you know, when they thought that Jesus was gone forever, but he came back from the dead. Comeback, greatest comeback of all time. And of course, these resurrection appearances, what we're looking at uh, in the gospel. And, and as I mentioned, this is a mistranslation, but in today's gospel, it says, that Jesus took great pains to tell the apostles, I am not a ghost. He actually said in, in, the, in the original Greek text, he was probably speaking Aramaic, of course, but in the Greek text of Luke, the original, it says spirit, not ghost. And you might think we're splitting hairs here. And, and perhaps we are to some extent. But, but the point of this is that Jesus is, is physical. His resurrected body is corporal. It's real. It's tangible. They can touch it. He can eat. And this is important because this has happened before, back in, in, in Mark's gospel. When Jesus approaches them walking on the water, they freak out. And why were they so scared? Not just because they'd never seen anything like this before, because they actually thought he was a spirit. They thought he was a malevolent spirit. Because they can see it was kind of dark. What? Who is this? Because the sea, in the Jewish mindset, is the home of evil. In the book of Revelation, we talked about this on our Revelation series on the Faith Explained. The monsters, the beasts, arise out of the sea. And they're, they're horrific. They'll give you nightmares. But the land, like think about the Holy Land, that, that is the good place. Okay, And so any creature or, or, or individual that's coming at you from the sea, that's not usually a good thing, but it's Jesus. And he's walking on the sea, which really tells us, I am treading over all of the evil. It's like treading on the serpent, treading on the Satan. And so you don't need to fear at all. And he, he always says that, don't fear. Fear not, have peace. I'm going to give you peace that the world cannot give. And that's what he says in the, in the gospel today as well. But one of, the, one of the things that I think Luke was doing here, by the way, we just t- we're talking a little bit about St. Paul. I, I think, and this is what I, I wrote a paper about this when I was in grad school, that I think that Luke, remember, he's writing this gospel after Paul's letters. Now, the, the earliest New Testament documents, we mentioned this a little bit earlier today on the Faith Explained show, 1230 Central. It's kind of our Easter evidence week, going through evidence for the resurrection. The earliest New Testament documents are the letters of St. Paul, written before the Gospels, in all likelihood. And so Luke is aware that St. Paul wrote this. Let me just flip open to this in my Bible. Oh, that's a real sound effect, too. The page is flipping. How about that? Um, this is what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. A lot of people misunderstand this. Remember yesterday we were talking about how people have these erroneous views of the resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. Jesus didn't physically rise. Hogwash. But why, why do people think that? Some people actually claim to get this idea from the Bible. And so St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is a big chapter on the resurrection. He says something that's a little bit confusing to people. He says um, about the resurrection body, he says, it is sown, um, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. Think about the, the body like a seed going into the ground, the body being buried. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. And so 
this is the line from St. Paul, and that's verse 44. It's it's uh, sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. That's what gets people a little bit confused. Well, Paul, Paul's saying, well, they say, well, Paul's claiming the resurrection of the body is just, it's just spiritual. It's a spiritual resurrection. No, that's not what he's saying. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. Just because he says spiritual body, that doesn't mean it's immaterial. That doesn't mean it's non-physical. There is no place in the entire Bible where spiritual means non-physical. That's What he's saying is it is physical, but it has spiritual properties. It's different. It's changed. Yeah, it, of course, Jesus can appear in different places. Um, he can kind of show up places, maybe pass through solid walls. I don't know, but he's still really still physical. You can still touch him. You can still give him something to eat and he'll eat it. So the point is that it's changed, but it, it's still physical. It's just in a, operating in a different realm, a different reality than, than, than what we have right now in the body, which is subject to the weakness of sin and corruption, decay and disease and death. But that's all going to change uh, going forth. And this is what I think Luke was trying to do here. Remember, he's writing the Gospel of Luke way after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians maybe 53 AD or so. I think Luke is probably writing in the 60s, maybe the 50s, probably the 60s AD. So it's after that. But 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 I think people are already misunderstanding St. Paul. I think there are already wacky ideas about Easter that are floating around the early church. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to correct them. He's trying to correct them and say, no, no, no. And remember, I, I hung out with Paul. That's what Luke is saying. I hung out with Paul. I know what he taught. And I want to just stress again and again and again that the resurrection is physical. And I think also another reason why he wants to mention the resurrected body of Jesus is that um, he may be concerned that people think that the early Christians were guilty of necromancy, necromancy. Now, what is this? This is this idea of consulting the dead, consulting the spirits of the dead. And you might have been accused of this. If you're a Catholic, you might have been accused uh, of this by a non-Catholic. Hey, you Catholics in your communion of saints, you're talking about the saints all the time. You're guilty of necromancy. This is a sin. This is a very deadly sin in the Old Testament, consulting the spirits of the dead. It's a no-no. Why are you doing this? Well, necromancy is mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 28, uh, verse 3 to 19. Isaiah 8.19, Isaiah 19.3, Isaiah 29, verse 4. That's not what's going on here. So Jesus is, this isn't the spirit of a dead person. He's alive, number one. And number two, he's, he's in his resurrected body. And number three, he's God, but we can talk about that another time. But th this is not the same thing at all. Now, what, what these people tried to do was they wanted to consult the spirits of the dead to try to learn stuff about the future. That's, that's what, what part of the sin was. That's not what we do when we ask the saints to pray for us. We're not trying to get, hey, can you please tell me the future? No, that, pull out your crystal ball. That's not what we're doing. We're asking them to pray for us and leave the result to God's will. But that's, that's a totally different thing uh, than, than the Old Testament sin of necromancy. But it may also be something that Luke wants to correct. He wants to make sure that people know that that's not what the early church was doing. That's not what the first Christians were doing at all. All right. Let, let's go to the phones right now. Let's let's pop into a phone call. Let's go to Jose in San Benito, Texas. Welcome back, Jose. Happy Easter. Yeah. Happy Easter. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Kill. Uh, 
Thank you. I just heard on the relevant radio news a couple of days ago that uh, I don't know what university found out uh, through some x-rays or something, that there were some chapters missing from the from the book of uh, Matthew um, that he was... They were missing when the when the monks in the Middle Ages were translating the the, the Bible, something like that. Uh, oh. I don't know if you heard anything about it, and I'm wondering if that if that's possible, and maybe if there's a book uh, of Matthew on the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. Compare them. I don't know. Well, th- thanks for mentioning that, Jose. Actually, I had not heard about this. Um, I didn't know about this, so I'm going to have to do do some research and um, maybe. Uh, Producer Jim, if you know anything about this, or Patrick Alog, pop me an article. I had not heard about this, um, but if there's been a new manuscript discovery where they think maybe some additional chapters of Matthew have been found that were missing from the original, which is known as the autograph, by the way, that's the technical term for it, uh, that would be that would be major news if this is legit. So I, I know nothing about this, so I can't really comment on it. I try not to talk about things I don't know anything about. That's always a, a wise move. Um, but I will look it up. I, I would welcome it if it was real. Fantastic. I, th- I think it'd be great if they found more of Paul's letters. We know that he wrote at least two other letters to the Corinthians that we don't have. He mentions it in, in his writings that we do have. But it'd be awesome if somebody found those, found the originals. And who knows? Stuff might turn up. And I'm not afraid of that at all because it's not going to change the historical reality uh, of the resurrection of Jesus. So... Um, I think it'd be great. I think it'd be really great. And I'm super interested in Matthew specifically. You know, there's actually um, a big debate, and even the in the early church, they used to talk about this a lot. It, it was mentioned this this Hebrew copy of of the was there an original Hebrew copy of the Gospel of Matthew? And there might well have been a Hebrew version of it that was targeted at uh, Matthew's fellow Jews to try to convince them Jesus is the Messiah. And how do we know this? Well. There was a guy who, I think it was like 3rd or 4th century, I could be wrong on the dates, but this guy named uh, Shem Tob, and, and he was an anti-Christian. He did not think Jesus was the Messiah, and he wrote this document basically trashing the Gospel of Matthew, and he and he quotes from a Hebrew copy of the Gospel of Matthew, and I was like, whoa, when this thing was discovered, they're like, wow, where, where is he getting this from? So he has like... 90% of the Hebrew Matthew in his document. So he gives a bunch of stuff from Matthew, and he says, this is why I think this is whack. And then he tries to te- tear it apart. Um, I don't agree with this because of X, Y, and Z. But he, he basically quotes all of this Hebrew Matthew in his document. So nobody had ever really kind of seen this before. Um, so I, I think it'd be cool if, they, if, they, if, if there were more manuscript discoveries. I welcome it. And I think that's what's so great about archaeology is that it's constantly turning up things again and again and again. But uh, thanks for, for alerting me to that. I really appreciate that. Um, let's go to a, another caller, another Jose in Phoenix. Hi, Jose. Hey, Kale. So I was uh, just trying to follow up on that um, news the gentleman was talking about that was on Relevant Radio where they were talking about Matthew and that, mm-hmm. you know, there was a chapter missing. Well, there's a chapter, I believe it's on chapter three, if I'm not mistaken, where with ultraviolet lights, they were able to find that there was a chapter written, but it was erased. And then a new chapter was rewritten on top of that. That's what mm. the gentleman was talking about. Yeah. Okay. All right. I got. I got. I definitely have to hit some research on this. And if you guys have some good uh, articles about this, you can email it to me. Uh, Klcale at relevantradio.com. I, I definitely will look this up. This is intriguing. Yeah. So I guess this would be a sort of a 
uh, let's just uh, use the old liquid paper here and, uh, you know, paper it over and, and write over it. Uh, hey, they didn't have electronic documents back then. You didn't have an unlimited sheet of paper on Google Docs or Microsoft Word. There was papyrus. Um, you didn't want to waste it. You want to write on both sides sometimes of a document. Um, so you had to be very, very judicious with your words. Let's put it that way. And so that's that's intriguing. So I did not I did not hear about this. So you guys have scooped me on this. I love it. I love it. You guys are my detectives. So this is great stuff. Uh, you're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. And hey, I scoop myself on something. By the way, with respect to the faith, I I hadn't heard this before, but this actually comes to us from our good friend, Father Robert Spitzer. Uh, who's the founder of the Magis Center, and he's a frequent guest on Relevant Radio. Father Spitzer just blows my mind. Like, this this guy is an absolute brainiac, but he's also really holy. He's incredibly learned, but he's very pious. And he, he's really carrying a heavy cross. you got to pray for Father Robert Spitzer, SJ, uh, who for so many years was at Gonzaga University. And he um, his, his eyesight has deteriorated very, very badly. Uh, to the point where I believe he's, if I'm not mistaken, producer Jim, maybe you can back me up on this because I know you've spoken to him recently. Um, I, I believe he's legally blind. Is that is that not the case? Um, but yeah, and so that for for a scholar like him, you think that's got to be a, a pretty heavy cross to carry because he can't really read like he wants to and he can't really research like he wants to. And, and God's given him such a great intellect. And I remember seeing, he, he has this book called New Proofs for the Existence of God from physics and cosmology and all kinds of stuff. And I saw a video series that he did on this before I got the book and <laughs> he blew my mind. He, he, it was just amazing. And, and how excited he was about it too. It was just so inspiring to see. I love this guy. But um, there's, there's an article. Now, I, I hadn't heard about this. Eucharistic miracles from the 21st century. I did not know. There, there are at least four approved Eucharistic miracles from the 21st century. Some of the stuff happened while you and I were walking around on planet Earth. So this is amazing. And in, his, in, in this article, it comes from the Magic Center. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can dive deeper into it. But Father Spitzer rightly points out that there's a Eucharistic miracle every day. It happens at every single Mass, on every altar, in every Catholic parish all around the world. When bread and wine is transformed, is transmutated, as as St. Justin Martyr puts it, transubstantiation is the technical term of the Church, it's changed into the substance of Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. But these Eucharistic miracles are really uh, extraordinary signs that Jesus is present in the Eucharist. In, in some ways, it's almost like the the appearances of bread and wine are taken away, so you can see what's really there. It's almost like Jesus wearing a mask, wearing a disguise of bread and wine, but that is kind of peeled away, so you can see what's really there. And so we, we all are probably familiar with um, the famous miracle at Lanciano, Italy, which happened in the 8th century. Lots of people know about that. But what about ones that are closer to our own time? Well, there are four that are mentioned here in this little piece, and two of them took place in Poland. One was in 2008, the other one was in 2013. One took place in India in 2001, and one took place in Mexico in 2006. So those are the four I'm going to talk about. 
there apparently were also a series of Eucharistic miracles that took place in Buenos Aires, Argentina, between 1992 and 1996. And that was when uh, the current Pope, Pope Francis, was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. And he, it was apparently under his watch. So I don't know anything, anything really about those ones either. But let me tell you about these four that I want to mention here uh, from our good friend, Father Robert Spitzer and the Magis Center. First of all, this is uh, from a place in, in Poland called, and apologies if I'm not pronouncing it right, Legnica, Legnica, L-E-G-N-I-C-A. And it was a bleeding host. This happened on Christmas Day, 2013, at the Church of St. Hyacinth in Legnica, Poland. So a consecrated host fell on the floor, and someone uh, picked up our Eucharistic Lord, put the host into a container with water so that would dissolve. And I've seen this happen. Uh, my parish priest used to do this as well. They would find hosts all over the place, and people would take them back to the pews. They'd find them on the floor. That's really very tragic. And um, so I pray, Lord, have mercy. And, and he would put these hosts he would find in, in, in water because after the after the appearances of bread and wine are no longer there, uh, the real presence is no longer there. So as it as it decomposes, if you will, when it's decomposed, it's no longer bread. The real presence is not there anymore. Then you can kind of get rid of it safely. So that's not what happened in this case, though. This host was found, put into a container with water, but instead it formed red stains. And in February of 2014, they examined it. Uh, including the Department of Forensic Medicine in Poland. And, and this is what they said, quote, in the histopathological image, wow, that's a $5 word, histopathological, wow, I don't even know what that means, but in the histopathological image, the fragments were found containing fragmented parts of cross-triated muscle. It is most similar to the heart muscle. And that's really intriguing because in so many Eucharistic miracles, when the host has turned to flesh, it's been the flesh of a heart muscle. It's like the, the sacred heart of Christ. And went on to say this. Uh, it was very similar to the Eucharistic miracle in Lanciano, Italy. The tissue not only was similar to heart tissue, but it had alterations that appeared during times of great distress. So, so they've, they've seen heart muscles, which have experienced great distress. That's what this muscle "Quote unquote," seem to seem to uh, exhibit as well. So, in 2016, this bleeding host in Poland was approved for veneration uh, by the Bishop of Legnica, who said that it has "quote all the hallmarks of a Eucharistic miracle." The second one, I'll be able to do this one real quick, and then we'll take a quick break, Jim. Uh, this happened in Mexico in 2006 in October. There was a retreat going on in Mexico, and during Mass, two priests and a nun were distributing communion when the, when the nun looked at, at the at the celebrating priest she had tears in her eyes the host that she had held in her hands had begun to effuse a reddish substance and so once again the bishop asked a, a medical personnel a scientist dr ricardo gomez who by the way also researched the the miracles in buenos aires so he and his team conducted a bunch of scientific research and i love that about the church that they will let secular scientists just kind of examine this stuff. They have nothing to hide here. They want to know if it's if it is truly outside the realms of what's quote-unquote normal. Um, this is a, a truly miraculous thing. So in 2013, the research concluded that the reddish substance that was on that host that made the nun kind of tear up, it corresponds to blood. 
hemoglobin DNA of human origin. The blood type is AB. Now that's really important because the miracle in Lanciano, Italy, also when they examined the host in the 1970s, like centuries after this happened, it also was found to have the blood type AB. That's also what they found on the Shroud of Turin, by the way, the blood type of the person from the Shroud, which in all likelihood was Jesus, blood type AB. So how about that? Now I know in preaching, I've heard preachers say the Jesus's blood type was O, the universal donor. Now that's great preaching, but it's actually not true. It was blood type AB. So that, that is the second of the four Eucharistic miracles that happened in our lifetime. I'm going to give you the, the last two after this break. So keep you on the edge of your seat. Come right back. Don't go away. 888-914-9149. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Be right back. This is the Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program. 888-914-9149 is the number to call. Hey, we're talking about some Eucharistic miracles that have happened in our lifetime, in the 2000s, in the second millennium. And I'm going to tell you about the last two in just a second. But let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Jerry, who's calling from Wisconsin. Hi, Jerry. Hello. Hey, welcome to the program. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I just get excited about AB blood because that's my blood type, and it oh, is wow. universal donor for plasma. Ah, for so, plasma. Yeah. Okay, so we we can use this in preaching. This this is great. This is so in, in case you got in case anybody's just tuning in now. We were talking about some Eucharistic miracles and some of the major ones, including ones that have happened recently. They've examined these hosts that have turned to flesh. And blood, and the blood type is AB. That's true of Lanciano, Italy, some of the more recent ones as well. And I was joking that a lot of preachers would say that the blood type was O because that's a universal donor. It's actually AB. But I, I just learned something new. Jerry has just told me that AB is the universal plasma donor, blood plasma. So it still works. I love that. I love that you've called in to tell us that. So yay. All right. We can do more, more like preaching that makes people go, ooh, that's, that's great. It's really, really good stuff. And uh, I hope you are enjoying the Octave Easter, Jerry. Thank you so much for calling in. Okay, great. Well, we'll, we'll let you get back to driving. I think I think she's in the car. So uh, keep your eyes on the road. Keep your ears on the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. Okay, Marianne is on. We're going to get you in just a second, Marianne. I just want to finish up. What were the other two Eucharistic miracles here? Uh, one of them happened in India in 2001, and this is a bit different from the others. On an April morning in that year, the pastor at St. Mary's Parish in, in, a, in a town in India had the Blessed Sacrament exposed for adoration, and soon he saw, this is intriguing, he saw three dots on the host. And he asked the people that were there, do you guys see three dots? And they're like, yeah, I guess, kind of, yeah. So then he, 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 he left for a week. He came back, I don't know if he was on vacation or everybody, he came back and he found that the host had developed an image of a human face. He thought, am I, am I imagining this? Is this really actually happening? So he asked an altar server, do you see anything here? And the altar server said, yeah, I see the figure of a man. And so he had a photographer take, take an image, and there's a link to the image. So it's in the show notes. I'll, I'll send this to producer Jim. You can check it out, check out the link. That also an approved Eucharistic miracle. And the last one also comes from Poland. 
Uh, this happened in the city of Sokolka in 2008 at the Church of St. Anthony. And one morning during Mass, a priest accidentally dropped a host while he was distributing communion. And again, the, the, the whole uh, technique of putting the host in, in a small container of water, letting it decompose. And the pastor asked the sacristan, who was a nun, to put the container in a safe in the sacristy. And she did. So a week later, she went to check on it. Sister Julia, when she opened the safe, she said she smelled the fragrance of unleavened bread. And she saw that the host had a red blood stain on it. So immediately they told the archbishop, and he checked it out. He had it taken out of the container, placed on a corporal, and it stayed in the tabernacle for another three years. During that three-year period, the stained fragment of the host dried out, which made it kind of look more like a blood clot or a blood stain. And then they did studies on it. And they found that the this part of the host was identical, once again, to heart tissue, myocardial heart tissue of a person who is nearing death. The structure of the muscle fibers are interwoven in a way that you can't reproduce by human means. In other words, it's not a fake. So th this is incredible. So these are four Eucharistic miracles that have happened in our lifetime. We'll put a link to this article from our good friend, Father Robert Spitzer and the Magis Center in the show notes. Let's go back to the phones. Let's go to Marianne in Chicago. Hi, Marianne. Hello. Hi there. What's on your mind? Hello. You have some amazing stories there. It's like, oh. Pardon me. It's kind of off topic, but um, sure. it is very off topic. My cousin... Is, has been invited by a friend of hers who's going to foot the bill for her to go to Israel on a mm. pilgrimage tour, but that's a Lutheran tour. She's Catholic like I am. Part of the tour offers the people for a $25 charge to be baptized in the Jordan River, and she's a baptized mm -hmm. Catholic since, you know, since we were both 69 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, um, I had heard that it's not proper to be baptized a second time, let alone by a Lutheran minister. Yeah, that's that's not a good idea. Um, it's a once-for-all sacrament baptism. Now, uh, non-Catholic Christians, they, they don't believe this. Uh, it's true for them as well. If it's a valid baptism, and non-Catholics can be validly baptized, but it's a once-for-all sacrament. It's unrepeatable. And so some sacraments we can receive again and again. Of course, the Eucharist, confession, we need it a lot. Uh, but baptism, baptism is a once-for-all deal. And I, I, this actually happened to me when I left the Catholic Church. I became an agnostic, came back to faith in Christ and university through, through Protestants, and they, they, they said, you should get rebaptized, and I did. But it didn't actually do anything. It didn't actually do anything objectively because I'd already been validly baptized. So, um, so yeah, so you see this happen in the Holy Land. I've taken people there before to the Jordan River, and you see groups of of non-Catholics reenacting their baptisms, getting rebaptized in the Jordan River. Yeah, Catholics don't do that. Yeah, we. So that is not not kosher. All right, so tell tell her don't do it. Um, and, and the other thing too, when you go there, you got to be really careful. The, by the way, the water is really it's kind of nasty. It's it's very brown. It's very it's not the cleanest water in the world. Let's put it that way. Um, and people will try to sell you. Jordan water river Jordan River water in these bottles. Don't buy it. Um, if you go to your hotel, you, the water comes from the same source and it's not brown. It's clear. It's the exact same Jordan River water. You can just bottle it up yourself and take it home to your friends and family for free. Just a little tip. And uh, 
So that, that's a good, really good question, though, because, yeah, it, it comes up an awful lot. It comes up an awful lot. Thank you for asking, Marianne. Really appreciate you. How are we doing for time, Jim? Okay, we okay, we, we got enough time to squeeze this in. Now, Now, our good friend Chuck Swirsky, who was on the show this week, was broadcasting in Toronto the Bulls-Raptors play-in game, which turned out to be the last game of the season for my poor Raptors. But, hey, kudos to the Bulls. They played great, came back from 19 points down in the third quarter, partially because... A former Toronto Raptor and now Chicago Bull, DeMar DeRozan, and his daughter, who was doing this during the game. Check this out. That is the daughter of DeMar DeRozan. And here's the voice you're hearing when Raptors shoot. She's screaming. (laughs) That time it didn't work. (laughs) It's the thought that counts. Trying to help daddy out. Yeah, so that was nine-year-old D.R. DeRozan, who's DeMar DeRozan's daughter. She was sitting right behind one of the baskets with her mom. Now, she spent a lot of her childhood in Toronto because DeMar played for nine years for the Raptors, and he was a great Raptor. He's now with the Bulls, and, and she said, Daddy, can I go to the game in Toronto? I'd really love to come back there, really love to cheer for you. And so he said, yeah, why not? So they pulled her out of school for the day. She came to the game. Whenever the Raptors were shooting free throws, she would be screaming, trying to distract them, and may, maybe it worked. Bulls came from 19 down to win, and uh, they, 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 they had a great, great game. DeMar had 23 points. Zach Levine led the Bulls with 39, almost got a 40-piece. And now the Bulls, they have to go to Miami Friday night. They're going to play the Heat. They're going to try to beat the Heat, literally, and try to get in as the eighth seed in the NBA playoffs. And DR is not going this time. She had to go back to school. Well, uh, hopefully we have all learned something on this show, on this episode of The Kale Clark Show. I know I have. i got to check out all this Matthew Manuscript stuff that you guys told me about. That is news to me. It's always good to spend the time with you and all of our friends here at Relevant Radio. Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Alog took your phone calls. Got a great night of programming lined up going forward. We've got Timory coming up. Then Father Rocky, the family rosary across America. I'll be back on The Faith Explained, 1230 Central tomorrow. And again on the Kale Clark Show at 5 p.m. Central. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.